This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Series 3, Folklorica Nordica. As these autumn days descend into the dark days of winter, we will journey into subterranean and spiritual realms through the folklore of the Nordic world. We will encounter the shamans, the subterranean beings, the wise folk and healers, and trolls and giants of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Finland. In these northern lands, we will encounter a fascinating body of tales retold to evoke not only the original magic of the stories, but also the beautiful and mysterious regions they come from. Episode 7, Reindeer Herders, Trappers, and Soul Travelers, Stories of the Sami People. Introduction. The following is a quote from early 20th century Danish artist and ethnographer Emily de Montat from the introduction of her book of collected Sami tales, stories which were often told while sitting around the campfire, which was positioned in the center of a conical tent. In the protective light, everything may be named. All the horror and sorcery conjured by the darkness. Outside the tent, in the deepest night, wander the dead, the spirits, the evil thoughts one person sends to another. Out there are storms and clouds, the moon, stars, and northern lights. Here inside the tent is the campfire. Here is home, the great safe place. And during the day, the Sami, like other people, are busy with tasks. But when the darkness draws them to the campfire, when the stew kettle hangs on its sooty chain, and the steam and smoke rise through the tent, opening to the clouds in the night sky, then rest comes. Memories slip in, like dreams to a sleeper. The tales and customs of olden times are still a wellspring among the Sami. Demont Hat lived among and studied the lives of Swedish Sami in particular, though the Sami people, in general, all of whom share a similar ethnic identity, inhabit a vast geographical area. From the Atlantic coast of Norway, the lakes, rivers, mountains, and forests of Norway, Sweden, and Finland, even to the Kola Peninsula of Russia. They are the Nordic region's indigenous people. Their land, called Sápmi, and their ancient ancestral identification with this land is most movingly portrayed in a traditional tale from the Kola Sami of Russia. The Tsar, the Russian ruler, wanted to reward a Sami soldier with a mansion for his bravery and service. However, the Sami man respectfully declined, saying, There is no disagreement. Your mansion is fine, full of light and beautiful, but Sapmi, my land, is even better. Our mountains are even bigger than your palaces, our skies are higher than your roofs, 
Our sun, moon, stars, and northern lights are brighter than your lamps. How can I exchange my sop me, my homeland, for that? Indeed, while the Sami were often assimilated into neighboring Scandinavian cultures, they also maintained a distinct cultural identity, living in family groups called Sida. The Skolt Sami, in fact, have preserved this traditional lifestyle, more so than other Sami groups, and so provide a fascinating look into a semi-nomadic existence. With an economy centered around hunting, fishing, and reindeer herding, they migrate according to spawning seasons of fish, with conical tents used as homes during these migrating periods. And at the end of April, when they have moved into the interior, in spring, when reindeer calves are earmarked, and in June, when they move to the highlands for grazing pastures. And mingled with the lifestyle dictated by the needs and movements of animals and seasons was an animistic religion that envisioned the natural world as being enlivened and sustained by spiritual power. The three-level cosmos consisted of the upper heavens, the middle earth, and the underworld, all held together by a world tree and fixed to the North Star. This was a cosmos where the spiritual world and the dimension of human beings met in certain caves, ravines, rapids, and landlocked lakes, places where there were openings to the other spiritual levels, even portals to the netherworld, the land of the dead. In the Sami spiritual pantheon, Reindeer held an important place with one of the most important myths featuring the holy white reindeer Mayandash, an entity who sometimes appeared as a wild reindeer or as a wild man. A Soviet ethnographer published these myths, and during his time, sacrifices to Mayandash, whose mother was the goddess of earth and childbirth, were still carried out by a lake where piles of rocks and stones indicated sacrificial sites and were surrounded by reindeer antler offerings. The spiritual potency and central importance of reindeer is further seen in the fact that the ancient Sami would sacrifice a male reindeer each autumn to a major god in the pantheon called Varaldin Radian, translated ruler of the world. The wind god, Bigal Mai, is similarly linked to reindeer and is revered by reindeer-herding Sami, who believed the direction of the wind greatly influenced in which direction the animals migrated. And other important deities, of course, represented other all-pervasive and powerful forces. Jabmi Daka, for example, the venom-filled lady of the underworld who could inflict people with terrible diseases. And in the same vein, three spirit brothers who personified epidemic diseases. The eldest being smallpox, whose true name was Taboo. In the Dark Realms, there was also Ruto, demon of disease, who dwelled in the hellish domains of Rotebu. Now, from the nadir of the world, we then move to the zenith, the sun god or goddess Bievi, worshipped and beloved. Amongst the Western Sami, Elekis Olmak were spirits that helped spread the sun's life-giving heat and warmth. And these fascinating creatures had wings and were decorated with the skins of Sami drums, an instrument central to shamanistic practice. And the Noedi, or Sami shamans, in fact, had a key element to their practice. The trance into which the Noedi entered while performing prayers and sacrifices in order to gain access to spiritual realms, 
Now, among the most famous of the Noedi or Sami shamans was Akmili, who's said to have fallen into a trance from the beat of his drum, but was most unfortunate when his wife forgot the words that would release him. Until 30 years later, when his corpse was so decomposed that, despite her remembering the words, he had to return to the underworld. Sami drums are powerful spiritual tools, and according to an 18th century chronicler, the drum skin was divided to represent the three-part cosmos, with the gaps in the lines and boundaries indicating points of passage between the three worlds. An image of the sun was a common point of focus, with the moon also holding great symbolic importance. The same chronicler also provided a detailed description of a drum ritual. Before he journeys, the Noedi consults the drum and places a special ring upon it. Then he strikes the drum with a small hammer made from deer's horn, and the ring is shaken from side to side. And as it touches certain figures of good or bad omen, the Noedi is able to make predictions concerning the future. Ruto, for example, the demon of disease often depicted on Sami drums, was represented in the figure of a horse, perhaps suggesting the speed at which epidemics could sweep through a human community. Generally, the Noedi had high status in the Sami community, but were also feared, for their abilities ranged from soul flight to the ability to wield power over the winds to cure illness and to find stolen goods. The ancestors of these powerful Noedi were said to dwell on a sacred mountain, or sacred mountains, and in one such sacred site, in a mountainous location in the north of Sweden, an image is etched into a boulder, an image of a humanoid figure holding a bow and crowned with antlers, potentially a depiction of Juoksaka, the goddess of hunting. This fascinating world of spirit and wilderness is the backdrop for the stories in this episode, many drawn from Swedish Sápmi but with additional elements and stories from Norwegian and Finnish Sápmi. Now, before we explore the folkloric realms of the Sami people of the Great North, please support Mythos by becoming a patron. Go to www.mythospodcast.com and click on the Patreon link to join me as I journey through world folklore. The next stop, the Baltic nations of Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. Then who knows, perhaps Central Asia or East Asia. Someday we'll travel to Appalachia, USA, then to South America, maybe even Patagonia. As a patron, you get to help determine the direction Join today and receive a postcard of original folklore-based artwork as a thank you. Now, if you're a writer or artist, you might also find my scanned research notes and episode transcripts an excellent resource, available to top-tier patrons. And of course, a quick thank you to current patrons, to Brian Russell, Chris Hargan, Darren Davis, Eva Pivovarska, Heather Anderson, Eva, Jackie, Jackie Benke, J.K. Webb, Joe Upson, Laura Brown, Nicole S. Mayhew, Rasha Kuhn, Scott Sweet Christian, Shannon Cohen, Sindarfing, and Spike Dean. Thank you very much for your support. Lastly, if you could follow me on Twitter or like the Facebook page, that would be excellent in my tired moments when I don't have the energy to manage my life and produce content. Your input and encouragement really helps. In the meantime, enjoy the stories. Thank you.
Story 1, The Underground Folk and the Gift of the Reindeer, from the Pita Sami of Sweden. Before time immemorial, beyond the memory of ancestors living and dead, this story now stretches from this tent and this fire, from this field where the reindeer herds quietly graze on mossy fields, all the way to the shadowy times when the Sami had no reindeer. Once upon a time is the enigmatic opening appropriate to that which is timeless. Once upon a time, there was a Sami man who trapped ptarmigan, that peculiar rock-dwelling bird, and perhaps because he spent so much time with birds on his mind, he found that this time, like many others, when he sat down in a forest clearing and fell asleep, his dream mind became a bird mind. In his dream state, he soared over a marshy river valley, both sleek and sludge. The river and its tributaries like liquid silver poured from the forge of the gods. They were silvery, silvery blue lines either mirroring the bright heavens or brooding over the tenebrous underworld. The whispering tributary snaked through marshlands of mud and lichen, with ever-present pines and orange-green mountains pockmarked and porous, flanking the river valley. And this stretch of boreal entity was an odd place. In this forest, sometimes hunters would feel an uneasiness in all the normally quiet, subtle spaces of their being, the places of the soul that often went unnoticed. As they checked the rocks and snares for the birds, they'd feel strange as if they had been on a boat for too long and their bodies had forgotten the distance between foot and earth. Sometimes as they sat, hunters would feel the overwhelming urge to leave and find other ground, overcome by impressions of spaces beneath their feet that could swallow a man's soul as casually as a fish swallowing an insect. In the forest in the marsh, there were strange holes and pits that grimaced and breathed. And the story the Sami Trapper had heard was this. The Noedi, the shaman of a nearby Sida, said he had passed through the riverbed while in trance, and before making his way to the underworld, he had seen people. Not the spirits of the dead, but folk who were somewhere between spirit and flesh. So, when the Trapper woke suddenly, his fire embers glowing with unusual vitality, a trembling feeling in those less-traveled ravines of the soul, he was not surprised to see the forest exhale into the clearing a girl. A girl whose eyes were liquid silver and star blue, who wore clean, fine furs and gold in her hair and at her breast. The trapper felt for the first time his lonely spaces, for he had been a trapper for so long, had pursued his lonely trade for so long, that his aloneness in the world was like breathing. But this girl's smile was like a torrent in a dry valley that had lost its ability to feel as it exists, but now felt the cold, beautiful, exhilarating cutting pain of rushing spring mountain waters. The trapper couldn't bear to see her leave, and could feel what she was, could see in her movements a lightness of being that was not human. So, when the girl sat down next to him, he took out his knife. 
Blood was the thing. Blood bound us all to our own humanity. So he pricked her finger, and as she gazed down at the little drop of blood on her fingertip, she said, That was my heart. For a time, she looked at the blood, and the trapper felt some regret, yet knew the action was inevitable. He had been entranced. The girl, this Hulda, this woman from the underground realm, had existed in realms where spirit was all and flesh its expression. But now as the girl gazed at her own blood, the very substance and definition of mortality, the trapper saw her face alight in a curious smile while tears streaked her face. I have a heart, the girl exclaimed in an awed whisper, and at that moment the forest exhaled again, and the feeling of infinite spaces being folded into the very air overcame the hunter again, and into the clearing appeared an old woman, wrinkles and skin valleys belying a very young spirit. The woman sighed deeply. Exhaling the same moss and soil-laden scent the forest breathed after the rain. Child, she said to the girl, now you have to remain on the earth. I am sorry to see you go. The trapper watched as silver-blue eyes met silver-blue eyes in unspoken understanding, and something very mean and narrow-gazed popped into his heart and soul. The snarer would snare and bring these two very powerful beings into his family, and with that conniving thought, he threw the knife at the old woman. But she was too wise and had seen his thought, and disappeared before the knife touched her. The Holda and the Trapper were creatures of forest, rock, and cavern. And so it followed that when the girl took him by the hand and led him to a dark opening, framed by tree roots and leading into the mountain, he did not question or protest. He let himself sink into that sea-legs vertigo sensation and trusted the darkness. Somewhere he could hear rushing water, and the trapper thought this must be the fey cavern that the Noades' soul had passed through. The walls of this small cavern were lined with tree roots that seemed to form fantastical geometric shapes. Some forming patterns he recognized, patterns he had seen on the drum that powerful shamans wrapped in soul-lulling rhythms to propel their spirits into other realms. The girl said to him, I must leave for three days. Be calm no matter what you see or hear. And as she said farewell, her form became hazy and slowly disappeared into the mountain wall. And on the first day in this strange cavern, the first night, the trapper heard the joiks that chanted songs of his people, joiks that seemed to burn into the empty spaces around him, or as if invisible trenches of unseen realms were all around him. Deep, deep in the invisible space around him came drumbeats that threatened to pull his soul mind through his nose, ears, and mouth, and on that first day, then came louder and closer, louder and closer, from these impossible ravines of strange dimensions, the increasing sound of a horse's hooves thudding on dull earth, and to the trapper's great dismay, the sound of coughing, a terrible, hot shivering, and gurgled breathing. As he cowered against the cavern wall, 
an oily shadow appeared in the shape of a horse, and from this roiling, sludge-like form came all the sounds of suffering that made the trapper tremble. This shadow steed, dripping with dark tears, sweating suffering, was the sickness demon Ruto. The trapper held his breath until it had disappeared through a wall in the mountain. And on the second day, or perhaps the second night, the trapper heard the chanted songs of his people that seemed to burn into the empty spaces around him, or as if invisible trenches of unseen realms were all around him, and deep, deep in the invisible space around him came drumbeats that threatened to pull his soul mind through his nose, ears, and mouth. And on that second day, the trapper flung open his eyes to see. He strained to get the sense of it. A lithe form in the darkness. Now he could see gray-green skin, emaciated, thin, but retaining the curvature of womanhood. And despite being so thin, the figure's muscles were well-defined, exuding a terrifying strength. As it moved, the trapper's breath became trapped in his constricted throat, for it seemed to move with fluid, serpentine movements, this creature. It moved with fluid movements, like a serpent, though it walked on two legs. Somehow a being that walked with no bones, only perverse muscular strength. The trapper watched as the woman stiffed out the place with forked tongue, so much venom in her being that it dripped from her mouth and her long fingernails. The trapper knew who this was, could barely think her name, Jabmidaka. Once it too disappeared through the mountain wall, Jabmidaka, that venomous goddess of the underworld who joined Rumo in inflicting disease. Truly, this cavern was a terrible crossroads. And on the third day, or perhaps the third night, the trapper again heard the chanted songs of his people that seemed to burn into the empty spaces around him, and deep, deep in the invisible space around him came drumbeats that threatened to pull his soul mind through his nose, ears, and mouth. The trapper wept, curled up at the fetal position, and shut his eyes tight. He could not cope with another horrid vision. It was best to not look at all. The trapper drew his knees even closer to himself and imagined himself as a baby wrapped in furs, held in his mother's arms. He tried very hard to place his mind in a womb of wholesome images. And he again heard something like hooves, but those of a massive creature far larger than the shadow horse. His mind was subdued, full of heavy breathing and trembling readiness to flee. The thud of the creature's hoof beside his head reverberated so profoundly through his being that his teeth chattered. He could not look, only drew himself further into himself. Then, something unexpected. Something soft, velvety, and warm nuzzling into the back of his neck. A hot grunt, and then more nuzzling, gentle but insistent. The trapper slowly unfurled himself, slowly for fear that he would spring to pieces if he moved too quickly. And when he lifted into the sitting position, he gasped. First he saw 
the cloud-white antlers that spread across the entirety of the cavern ceiling. His vision traced the contours of the antlers to the roots of that mighty bone tree where a gigantic reindeer head lowered to gaze at him, blue eyes like that of many sky worlds, and over the whole creature's being, the very white that existed before all time and informed the purity of untrammeled snow and fluffy summer clouds. This was the holy white reindeer, Mayandash. This was a good omen indeed. Gazing at him, the reindeer lifted its head and bellowed, as if calling to those of his own kind. Then it too disappeared through the mountain wall. Now, the trapper's mind was now wrapped in white velvet, until the Holda girl returned and he waited out the dark uncertainty with peace. When she did return, she took him by the hand and led him out into a large f- clearing in the forest. He halted when he saw a huge herd of reindeer grazing and was even more shocked to see the girl walk up to one of them and pat its nose. It did not run or lower its horns. No, it nuzzled its nose into her hand. And in the midst of this beautiful herd was a large tent, perfectly erected, which upon inspection was clearly well stocked. And the girl in a soft voice said, It is all we need. The reindeer, wood, lassos, skis. The trapper learned all the ways of herding from the holder girl. He learned how to milk. While he lassoed the oldo or the reindeer cow, the girl milked it, and things went on peacefully like this for many days, except with one stern warning from the girl. You must not swear or joke while amongst the reindeer. They are a gift from Maya and Dash. Do not disturb them with ill-considered words. Do not swear. Do not curse. Inodoros, igodoros. And the trapper, now a reindeer herder, promised he would remember. But one day he tried to lasso a reindeer, and it fought and bounded away. So he, trapper, now herder, quite involuntarily uttered an oath, and the reindeer fell dead. And from the moment he uttered the words, he had been shocked to see a strange, powerful shadow gather around the aldo, around the reindeer cow, which cried out as reindeer do, and then fell like a limp rag. The Holda girl, the underground girl, wept over it and said, Because this reindeer died, the wolf has been given power to tear apart the reindeer. And on another day, when the reindeer herder uttered another oath, anger-filled and frustrated, and again saw his words take a dark, oily shape. And when the second reindeer fell dead, he remembered the oily black shape of Rumo the sickness demon. The second time, the Holder girl wept over it and said, because this reindeer has died, now sickness and epidemic can come among the herd. From that day forward, the trapper now herder learned to calm his mind while lassoing, to remember the gentle nudges of the holy white reindeer Mayandash in that dark place. He remembered to honor the gift of the reindeer with gentleness of mind and respectful silence.
Story 2. The Noede and the Realm of the Dead. Frostviken, Jomteland, Sweden. The westward-facing opening of the tent flapped in the world's breath breeze, air exhaled by a land heaving chested with pine-laden mountains. The descending sun glow and its concentrated shafts of light lilted and hummed with the swift, imperceptible movements of the Elekis Olmec, those blessed beings who carried the sun's warmth and heat over the known world. Wind and sun, the life stuff of the cosmos, breathed and beamed upon the Sami man sitting in his tent, the fire in the center blazing like the very offspring of the sun. Yet the man felt such sorrow that it seemed to take form around him as a contentious shadow that resented wind and sun and all life. The shadow of his sobbing sorrow was a creature that much preferred the deep river ravine close to the tent, preferred the strange dark portals that were part stone and part spirit. For his dear wife lay on that site, on that high platform for the dead, in a pasture some distance from his tent, that beautiful woman whose skin and smile on every curve and nook were woven into his own being. She lay on that high platform on poles where the dead reposed. He felt unsteady confusion in his center, in his limbs, as if the sinew and muscle and blood had been fed upon. His very being that had become one with her in the minute daily workings of their life together. His very being was eclipsed by the black world of death. For a moment, the Alekis Olmec cast sunshine into his mind, and he found respite in a vivid memory of their wedding day. The way her cheeks all flush and pleasure had matched the warmth and vitality of the ceremonial fire, and the fiery jealousy of the men who had not won her heart as he did. He remembered the way the soft ermine fur she was covered in seemed animal and elegant in its vitality, exactly matching her energetic and elegant movements amongst the reindeer. The steady rhythm of the drums making the longing beneath his own wolf skin, wedding garb, mount and mount. And from that day on and for many years, her fire warmth and elegant strength had not diminished an inch and every pot of fish soup and every gentle interaction with the reindeer and every firelit story streaming from her full and beautiful mouth had brought him joy upon joy. But then his mind plummeted back into the darkness of his memory and the shadow of his sobbing sorrow grew and grew. For in his mind's eye, he remembered one dusk not so long ago when he swore he had seen a loping four-legged shadow something vaguely equine, but taking mincing predatorial steps, lurking in the tree line. Now, he knew what had been spying on his happiness, what had swiftly lurched like a slithering animal carcass in the dark river ravine, for shortly after the fire and animal life of his wife's body and spirit had begun to shrink, turning inward to feed off her fat and life stores until she was as lean as a birch tree in winter. His wife now, or some perverse sliver of her being, now lay on the sea and two of their hired reindeer herders were keeping watch. 
his index finger absently tapped his drum as he remembered his instructions to them. For he had not tied down his wife's corpse in the traditional way, at least not completely. Because the herders were to untie her legs the moment they saw her hand raise. But would they do it if a corpse were to raise its hand? They feared him, after all, feared his powers as a noede, as a shaman, and might flee at such an improbable sight. Yet, the grief in that dark, blinding tunnel of empty loss tightened his mind into the narrowest possible sensations, and the thought of another night alone by this fire oppressed and tightened around his heart. He had to try. Sitting straight-backed and cross-legged by the fire, he took up a meat fork and laid it on the ground next to him. Then he took the deer horn in his right hand and held the drum in his left, and with a resounding strike of the deer horn on the bottom portion, upon the depiction of the underworld, a reverberation of unnatural intensity went through the drum and into the air around him, for he had fixed his gut and heart upon it. His intention hummed and boomed through all the three worlds, from the four directions of the known world into the regions of the dead and then vaulting from the mountaintops into the celestial sphere. He struck again with the deer horn and another unnatural bass tone sang from the drum through the world. And the three worlds heard his intentions. Forces and beings of vital antiquity leaned their ears and the Noede could hear a scampering and a widening and a bowing in the dark river ravine nearby. He could smell something loamy, the scent of the forest floor when one foraged near a tree root, and in his mind's eye could see a glowing, lichen-covered passage, immense. One of the roots of the great world tree would grant him passage to the underworld. He struck the drum again with faster, urgent repetitions, full of the same energy and passion he had often funneled into his wife. And his chants now, his monoharmonic chants, drew the drum reverberations into his bones and sinews. Growls and howls and yelps mingled with his vocal cords and exhaled into the world. And exhaled into the world was the growing dimensions of a passage, a portal, urgent drumming took on speeds unknown to human minds and senses and the tree root was now fully formed whispering his being downwards then he ceased silence panted and as the sun descended one of his hired reindeer herders having heard the drumming cease ran to the tent and poked his head inside the noede lay on the ground clearly in a trance his drum beside him, and his meat fork tight in his grasp. The herder hurried back to the Sita when his companion began shouting. The Noede's wife had lifted her hand. Her corpse, cold and stiff, had given the signal, and both herders stood terrified. If we untie her, one whispered, it may be that one of us must take her place. I have heard of such a thing happening. So neither of the hired men did as they were bid, and they stood transfixed with both curiosity and terror 
as the dead woman strained against the bonds that tied down her legs. Now, the Noede's soul self was drawn in the direction of the Dark River Ravine, as he suspected that his spirit would be. And that dark gouge in the Great Mother's skin was a powerful portal into her inmost realms. In that Fey Ravine was a knotted, gnarled passage older than time itself, and the wise shaman felt like an infant as he entered the immense tunnel full of whispers and breathing that seemed to come from invisible cracks in the air itself, this passage was nadir-oriented, was pulled downwards with ancient groanings, and every sound heralded a peril. First, it was a basin boom coming from the root-like and covered walls as if great beasts pounded the drum of some primordial giant. The force of the sound brought confusion to the Noetis' mind, brought disorientation, but he pushed through, continued forward until it ceased. Then, on both sides of him, above and beneath his feet, soil and stone began to break loose in a hard snuffle, strangely horse-like equine, burst through the breaks in the tunnel, and the Noede looked away quickly when he saw horse's teeth gnawing from the outside as if trying to eat through the tunnel. He hurried as equine heads began to emerge through, snorting and sniffing, horse heads perforated by decay holes and worm burrows. The Noede brought his wife's image before him and willed himself to continue on, and as his soul began to weaken, so far and so long from the anchor of his physical body, he arrived at a passage strangely blue-litten and massive. He stepped tentatively through and halted, for there was a great gathering of the dead. With all the features and movements of living, breathing people, but all conducted in utter silence, an absence of sound that left a void for his heartbeat and breath to fill. It wasn't until he neared closer that he could start to make out voices. And even these were whispering and insubstantial. In their midst, was a great ceremonial fire, and on the tables a fine spread of reindeer meat, stews, and large ripe berries, cloudberries, bilberries, and cowberries. There was salted fish and soft reindeer cheese. Great multitudes of the dead gathered around the fire, all in fine furs, and one tall man dressed in wolfskin and wedding attire. Wedding attire. Yes, the drums and the chants confirmed this. He crept through the crowd, and when he arrived close to the fire, he saw her. He saw his wife, dressed in the same ermine fur finery she had worn on their wedding day. And approaching her was the tall man dressed in a beautiful wolfskin. The Noede's grief mingled with rage and jealousy, and he gripped the meat fork tightly in his hand. This usurper of hearts would take his wife and leave him lonely night after interminable night. It was not to be born. So the Noede began to sneak toward his wife, and when he grabbed her and began to elbow through the crowd to get away, the wedding guest turned savage, pressed around him, snarled and snapped, and threatened to crush him. Their very touch and presence slowed down the blood 
and their voices vice-gripped the ears. The Noede continued trying to drag his wife away, fending off the dead with the meat fork, the steel burning and biting them as they tried to press near. But his wife could not be moved beyond the door of the dead. Invisible constraints bound her to this perverse copycat realm. And the Noede cursed his hired men, wept and cursed them as his wife, a wide-eyed gleam of recognition in her eyes, was dragged by the crowd back to the ceremonial fire. He fought his way out and stumbled back to the root passage, weeping and raging as the crowd subsumed his beloved one. And when the Sami man awoke in his tent, shivering next to the dead fire coals, he grieved and wept and allowed the shadow of his sobbing sorrow to deepen the night around him. Story 3. The Sickness Spirits Who Froze in the High Mountains Our stories so far have been word journeys. Our second souls have journeyed through reindeer fields golden with sunlight, to the fey caverns of the underground folk, and through gorges leading to the roots of the great world tree. Now our second souls will move steadily upward to the high mountains where perhaps one can find passage up to the very tops of the world tree to the cold and beautiful North Star. See in your mind's eye black-gray rock with such presence that your heart bows, mountains crowned with pure white and blessed with offerings of soft moss and orange lichen. This is a sacred mountain where the ancestors of powerful Noede dwell, and before time immemorial beyond the memory of ancestors living and dead, the Sami of old paid homage to their patroness, Yuaksaka, the goddess of hunting. For even today, there is a boulder with an image etched into it, a slender, elegant figure crowned by antlers, and with a bow in one arm. Now on this mountain, an old Sami man snared ptarmigan in the old way. Perhaps, says he, checked his snares and wondered he should have heeded the creeps and crawls of his skin. Perhaps he should have left when he sensed spiritual battles minutely felt in the invisible spaces around him. Nonetheless, he either remained, snared the birds, and ate, or fled and went hungry. And hunger is a terrible thing. The lonely trapper knew he was exactly that. The only of his humankind for many miles, and his kinship with silence made his ears capacious and preternatural in their abilities. So, when he heard a human voice erupt from the dark slices of ravine in the mountains, he nearly snared his own hand. It went silent for a moment, and the trapper reassured himself that it was some strange trick of the wind. But then, voices again, clear, shrill, discernible voices, again issuing from those strange mountaintop ravines. 
The trapper stayed stock still and listened. These voices were singing sorrowful songs full of funeral murk. They chanted back and forth the terrible morning, building and building until the trapper's heart beat with impossible speed. Perhaps he did not want to ignore someone in distress. Perhaps the trapper didn't want to remain with his own silent cowering, an open admission that terrible forces dwelled on this mountain. It's difficult to say what his motivations were, but as the singing wailed, the trapper called out to them, asking them if they needed help. The song ceased. Silence panted. The old trapper called out again and then a third time, and after the third time, the whimpering, simpering tones seemed to breathe upon his neck, a foreboding breath. The trapper felt shrill terror in his gut and turned with anxious movements in the clearing, watching the tree line. First, there emerged a scythe, blunted by innumerable harvests. But of what kind, the trapper already had a terrible inkling. The scythe was flushed red, as if the metal had been heated in a forge. Peering out from behind a tree and over the scythe, over the mean curve of the blade, like a nasty little child eager to tease and bully, was a grinning head with no apparent body. The trapper could only stare, a gulf widening between his desire for flight and the willingness of his body. Then, that stinging sensation of startled fear went through the trapper's body, for a grating sound behind him made him turn to see a rake being dragged along the gravel and back into the tree line. The rake was splotched and spotted, looked like human skin erupting in sores, and an inane, cruel titter accompanied the awful grating sound of the rake. Another head stuck out from behind a tree, covered in red welts. But the worst was the sound of sweeping. The third sound, the bristles of a broom scratching into the clearing and stopping directly at the trapper's feet. Snatches of hair and other unknown human fragments were tangled in the broom's branch bristles. And when the trapper dared to open his clenched eyes, he saw another head, whose emaciated body seemed to fade in and out of existence. The trapper knew, as all Sammy do, that these were the spirit brothers of sickness. The first, fever. The second, smallpox. And the third, plague itself. Spirits who could harvest and mow down and sweep away human flesh. And these spirits all began to wail and plead with thin, cough-wizened voices all at once. Take us down to the forest paths they breathed and conjoled. We are freezing here in the high mountains. A voice in his head commanded him to say no. And at first, though terrified, the old trapper obeyed. Perhaps the Noede of old and perhaps even Yuoksaka herself were speaking to him. Perhaps they were protecting the Sami by keeping those spirits bound and frozen in high places. It is impossible to tell, but we all lost more friends and family than we can count last spring, and so we know that the trapper gave in to his fear at last. 
The wailing, pleading, cough-wizened voices turned sinister, the heads floating and grimacing by their terrible tools. And they ensured him. They would do him no harm if they carried them, if he carried them down off the mountain. For the sickness spirits cannot go of their own accord. They must be carried. And the trapper, frightened and weary, finally agreed. And with mean, excited giggles, the spirits leapt onto his back, nestled into his clothes, and he endured, endured their fevered breathing on his neck during this perverse piggyback ride. He endured unspeakable terror as he passed gorges and ravines and caves where satisfied breaths exhaled from the underworld. And after a wearying journey, the trapper found a farm and brought them there where they scampered underneath the table. And it is said that in the area from Susendalen over to Mosioen, the people were completely wiped out. Yes, the sickness spirits are just devils that wander under the sun. Thank you for listening. If the Sami Noedi or shamanistic elements of the stories were interesting to you, I do have a patrons-only episode on shamanism around the world, amongst other patrons-only episodes. And any practical financial support you can give by becoming a patron would indeed be helpful. And of course, you do get access to that special episode. Um, for more details, go to mythospodcast.com, as mentioned at the beginning, and you can click on the Patreon link. Um, and of course, as I mentioned before, Baba Yaga herself will be sending you thank you postcards um, to the $5 and $10 monthly patrons. Um, the stories in the podcast today, and oftentimes, which is my approach, is that they are elaborated and developed. And for the sake of space and a wide representation of the folklore, I often combine stories. So for the originals, these stories are based on, and as I said, I remain pretty much true to the stories with just elaborations. Um, but at any rate, you can access the original stories that I've used by reading Emily de Hat's book, By the Fire, which she compiled while living with the Swedish Sami as an ethnographer. It actually is available on Kindle and on Amazon. Um, I'm also in the beginning stages of developing a special mythos project called Earthlore, which will explore how the human imagination interacts with the natural world. Um, I'll keep you posted on the development of this project. Um, please go to my website and message me if you have any ideas at all. My plan is to, on my end, contribute the folklore concerning the celestial sphere, um, forests, different geographical landscapes, um, botany, and plant life. And then um, what I'm hoping is to get a, a series of more uh, like scientific experts, so people who specialize in ecology and botany and things like that to contribute um, their knowledge on those topics as well. So again, please, uh, please message me if you know anyone, um, if you have a certain area of expertise. I'm in the beginning stages. I've had a few people contact me, but I definitely need some more. Um, so again, thank you for listening and support me if you can.